You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm Rick Kleffel, and we're here at the Badass Coffee Company Cafe in downtown Santa Cruz. We're speaking with Karen Joy Fowler and Gavin Grant. Karen Joy Fowler is the author of Sarah Canary and the Jane Austen Book Club. Gavin Grant is the founder and co-editor of Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet, and there's a new anthology that's just come out called The Best of Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet from Random House. Thank you for joining me, Gavin. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Great to be here. Gavin, maybe you could tell me about the inception of Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet. It seems like a classic case of the mimeograph meme from the early days of the small press zine world. We started Lady Churchill's basically because there wasn't anything filling that slot of things I really wanted to read. There were lots of magazines and lots of zines that I really liked, but there wasn't any that were named after Winston Churchill's mother. And I really, I really missed that and a mythical tattoo, but that was part of it too. And I started it soon after I met Kelly and Kelly had been to Clarion and had t- uh, become part of the professional circle of authors. She had met a lot more people than I had. So pretty soon after we started it, she started um, kind of sending out emails and calling people and saying, send us some weird work. Send us something that no one else will publish because we will. Um, so that pretty much, that's how, it's, that's how it began. Uh, Karen Joy Fowler, you have a story in one of the earliest copies of it. How did you get pulled into this? I um, was one of Kelly's instructors at the Clarion Workshop, so I met her just about the same time that Gavin is talking about when the when the uh, magazine was beginning, and um, you know was very taken with her, absolutely astonished by her work, and um, and then equally taken with Gavin when I met him. So I just I could see that they were going to be a force for good in the world of literature and wish to be part of that. Gavin, could you tell me a little bit about the the very first early days uh, of Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet? How, how I mean, this was a, actually a very small scale production to start with, wasn't it? Tiny, uh, beyond tiny. Me at my temp job running copies off when no one else was looking on the photocopy machine. Thank you, Company X and Company Y. Um, really ran off. 25, 30 copies of the first issue you know, when we went to do the second one, which was kind of a surprise, even though we numbered the first one, volume one, number one, as if we were going places. It still was kind of a surprise that people said, well, when does the next one come out? We kind of scrambled and thought, oh my God, we have to do something. Um, and we took that to a print shop. <laughs> sorry, the, sorry, the ambient music here is fantastic. We took that to a print shop and you know, to get a decent copy price, they wanted us to print a hundred copies of it, and we were kind of shocked by you know this the mass market nature of this. Um, it took us a long time to you know reach the fifty-five, sixty thousand that we're printing now. You know, 
I, I'm guessing that 65, uh, 50, 65,000 is maybe a little bit more than is actually happening. Uh, this is this is um, our marketing department talking, and no, it's uh, it's absolutely true. Could could you tell us a little bit about the kind of fiction you weren't finding elsewhere, and the kind of fiction you do find in your magazine? I think that now there's a lot more of the type of fiction that I was looking for available to me um, on the internet and in other magazines. I think. We were just looking for fiction that had the kind of literary skeleton, but a touch of the fantastic um, attached to it, so that it was showing you something about the world now, um, but in an unexpected way. It's awfully hard to talk about this kind of stuff without sounding silly. Um, and the best, whenever people say, well, what do you like to read? What do you like to publish? I can only say, read read the read the books, read the magazine. Fortunately, there's enough of it free online that you're, it doesn't sound too much like selling. But, um, you know, the, the Random House people came up with this tagline, unexpected tales of the fantastic. Sure. Yeah, something like that. I think that, that Lady Churchill's and um, Small Beer Press, Kelly and Gavin's uh, press, has had really quite a profound thumbprint on at least the field of fantasy and science fiction and, and possibly the wider literary world as well. When I taught this year at, at the New Clarion, which is in San Diego, um, I taught, it's a six-week workshop, and I taught the third week, and a writer named Greg Frost taught the first week, so he got in touch with me after his week just to let me know how it had gone and what I could expect. And he said, this is a, a completely a small beer clarion, he said. this Everything they're writing is uh, aimed straight at Lady Churchill's and at small beer press. And <laughs> which I thought was very good news. Gavin, tell us a little bit about small beer press. When did you found it and why? Sure. Um, small beer press kind of snowballed out of Lady Churchill's. Lady Churchill's, I think the first issue of the zine came out in late 96. And, you know, we, Lady Churchill's and Small Beer are just, we realized we needed operating tags, you know, the way that this coffee shop is called Badass Coffee. We, need, we needed something to go under, and it took us a, a couple of years to come up with something that I was happy with. Kelly? Eh, I think she's still looking for a better name, you know. Um, but I, we first published books in 2001. We published Ray Vuksevich's debut collection, Meet Me in the Moon Room, and Kelly's debut collection, Stranger Things Happen. We did that because we wanted we wanted it to be obvious that yes we're publishing Kelly's work, but we have a we have an intention of going on, you know, should we not immediately go bankrupt we would publish more books. I guess we had also begun with chapbooks before that. We published a couple of chapbooks as testers. And I love doing those and I wanted those to be really accessible so we did these five dollar chapbooks you know as high production values as we could that kind of thing and really good authors um Durkinez, mark rich uh christopher Rowe, richard butner theodora goss but i think that the the five dollar price almost works against them sometimes in science fiction because people want to pay fifteen dollars for a limited signed edition whereas i want someone to walk into a shop and say five dollars never heard of that author eh, i'll try it you know 
Karen, could you tell us a little bit about this kind of literature that's that the junction of the fantastic and the literary? You've done this for a long time, eh? and it's really interesting to me that that your work, which is so literary, comes so much out of the world of science fiction. You're really interested in the genre literature, aren't you? I am really interested in genre literature, uh, but I think largely what what I would say about that is that I'm a, an extremely political person, and I'm very interested in the world, and I'm interested in the, the large context of the world. Um, Kim Stanley Robinson, a, a wonderful writer and good friend of mine, is always saying that we are now living in a science fiction novel, that it is um, almost impossible, in fact, for the field of science fiction to push things further than the actual world in which we're living in. You know, once you can put a baboon heart in a man, once you can clone a sheep, um, sort of, you know, what, what is too fantastical to be real? And to that, I would add, once you can see Arnold Schwarzenegger elected as governor of California, what is too fantastical to be real? So in some very serious way, I feel that the tools of careful mimetic realism are too small for the world that we actually live in and are not, in fact, as realistic as some of the bigger, more outsized techniques of, of genre fiction. And, and it's interesting to me that you mentioned the put your political nature because I think one of the things that uh, this kind of fiction does is it draws people together in a way that's outside of any the way any other thing draws people together. That the people who read this kind of literature get together and, and band together in a way that that could be seen as very political. My response to that is maybe slightly off the topic that we're actually talking on, but that um, I think certainly that one of the things that I love about science fiction and about fantasy is that it is a literature with a community around it. And I think that uh, one of the things I love about Jane Austen is exactly the same thing, that there is a community of people who love those books so much that it's not sufficient merely to read them, that the, you know, they must get together with other people who read them, and they must spend long weekends in uncomfortable clothing because that's what you would wear if you were an Austin heroine. And that I, I, I guess I love books so much, and I've always thought if I ever wrote a, my own memoir, which I will promise you I will never do, um, you know, most of it would be spent in somebody else's world, in somebody else's book. I've spent so much of my life actually living somewhere imaginary that um, that I guess, you know, it's to me there's something consoling. I don't seem quite so peculiar when I get together with people who also feel passionately about books and, you know, wish to do nothing really but read and talk about them. Gavin, you're, you've been editing a lot of uh, best science fiction and fantasy anthologies. Uh, could you talk about that, too? Because I, I think that's what, what Karen was talking about, that the way these things, the, the community binds together. It binds together a lot around these kind of anthologies where we get a, a big group of, of different authors. And the short story form, as well, is really vital in, in the genre fiction world. 
Yeah, um, I guess Kelly and I have been working on the year's best fantasy and horror for the past three or four years. Ellen Detlow does the horror side of it. Sadly, we don't do a best of science fiction, although we're both big science fiction fans. Maybe one day we can take on the mantle of uh, Jonathan Strand and Gardner Dozois and all those people who somehow manage that as well. Um, it is interesting the way that anthologies and things like that can put together groups of people. When we do the year's best or when we when we thought of what we could put in the best of LCRW, you know, there were people who are definitely in the field. There's people we have met at conventions and then there's people who really we've got no idea who they are. You know, they, they sent us a story, they're somewhere out in the blue there. They may or may not know anything about us and that that part is kind of fun. I mean, that's also the fun of every issue in our magazine. We, we've never made a, we've no, we don't have anything formal in our guidelines, but we try and publish a lot of new writers. One of the things about reading for years best is when you open a magazine and you only recognize half the names, it's a treat. It's a, and that doesn't happen that often unless you're reading on the far outskirts of the genre where there are newer writers or it's that it's that edge where you're reading the Mississippi Review and you read, you know, a couple of mimetic, realistic southern stories and then you read something completely weird. You go, yes, yes, this is someone else who I would like to sit down and have a, have a beer with. Um, that's probably the good definition of everything that we publish. Uh, people who seem interesting, we would like to have beer with them. I guess that's where small beer press comes from. Yes, many small beers. One thing I really like about your magazine is that for how literary it is and how odd it is, it's really funny. There's so oh, much good. so much great humor in it. Could, could you, and, and also Karen, could you talk about the humor that, that you all use and enjoy and how it works with the genre and literature? Well, that's a hard one. Thank you, Rick. Yeah. Um, could you be funny? No, no, sorry. No, no can do. Was funny once. It was lovely. Brother. Brother laughed a lot, but no, after that. I remember it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> could you tell us all about it? Dead air. I think, um, I think that one of the things that appeals to me about, um, about the kind of, of stories and books that were so desperately trying to talk about is that is is that it's a very um, the the tone is very varied in the in the same way that you feel free to pull from all kinds of genre tra traditions you feel free to depend on history you feel free to depend on not history um, that you also for me you know when you begin these stories you frequently you cannot decide that because the opening is serious that it will be a serious story or because the opening is funny that it won't be a serious story that that I like I like literature that has a lot of tonal shifts just as I like literature that um, uses a lot of other kinds of effects so that I, I you know I'm, t I'm talking completely off the top of my head now and perhaps a, a careful thoughtful response would find that this is not at all true. But I would say that these stories tend to shift in tone a great deal more than most stories do. I'm guessing. What do you think, Gavin? Sure. Um, 
I guess, you know, what you quote you're looking for, what we are looking for in a story is the story that has some something a richness that you see in life. You know, I don't, I do not often spend a half an hour building up to building slightly depressedly and elegiacly up towards a small epiphany looking through my kitchen window and then you know that period of my life comes to an end the way that I feel that the prototypical uh, mimetic realist story is stereotypical stereotypical stereotyped as even though I read enough stories they're not like that but you know life doesn't come in these lovely little monotone parcels so I know that when bad things happen you're joking about it you're doing other things I think it's part of the it's part of the texture and also when you sit around with friends the conversation can be about as depressing as it can be about how the government has just just uh, basically told us that yes for the last six or seven years we've been living under military law because we don't really count the constitution anymore because of the extension of the the FISA laws um, that were passed in 2001 now if you don't if you can't laugh about that haha we're being spied on at levels that we didn't even think of you know it's either that or throw yourself off the end of the pier except you would land on the government submarine that's been watching you walk along the pier so the the humor is your basic coping mechanism i suppose and also trying to add the richness well this brings up another thing that i really like about lcrw which is that the variety in it, and just in terms of the format, we'll, we'll get uh, something that looks and reads pretty much like a, a short, short story, and then we'll get one of Aunt Gwenda's little interjections, lists, lots of music. I, I really love some of the music that, that she suggests. It's, it's the kind of stuff that goes in and out of my iPod. Could you talk a little bit about Aunt Gwenda and her function in the magazine? We realized that we needed more uh, a wider variety. We were getting non-fiction submissions that were that were interesting, but there was nothing hooking us. And then, if you've ever met Gwenda Bond, who keeps a nice lip log at chicken and stirred, um, we realized she was one of the wisest and smartest people we knew, besides Karen Joy Fowler. And when we asked her if she would do an advice column, uh, I think it was just a great coming together of things. We've just been joined by Kelly Link. She's the co-editor and co-founder of uh, Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet and Small Beer Press. Thank you for joining us. Hi. Sorry, I was late. I went to Logos Books. Oh, it's deadly, isn't it? It's fabulous. That's where I found a hardcover first edition of Phil Rickman's uh, Crib, uh, which was retitled in the U.S. as Curfew, and it's just one of my favorite books, so it was really a delight to find that there. Did you find anything great? I got a first edition of a young adult book, Holes by Lois Sacker, that I love. So, and it was eight bucks. <laughs> <laughs> Only eight bucks? <laughs> a, a, a book that was, that was a big feature film that was well regarded. It was, good. it was a good movie, too. The book is better. Also, when we first touched into town here, one of the first things we did was to go to the Santa Cruz bookstore where one of the clerks is uh, has had a story published in Lady Churchill's. So just to just to say hello and ask why she's not sending more submissions than she is. Uh, that would be 
Shauna Graham. Shauna Graham. Wow. Well, we'll have to talk to her sometimes. <laughs> uh, I wonder if the three of you could all comment, because one of the things I think that really supports the genre and the kind of work we all love are these bookstores, and, and they're really an important force, and it really comes down to, and it's amazing in this day and age, it comes down to one person selling one book to another person one at a time. We don't have a ton of great independent bookstores in Northampton, but whenever we travel, we get to stop in at um, Borderlands in San Francisco, and then um, both all three of the bookstores, the big indies here, Logos and um, Capitola Book Cafe, and then the other one is just called the it's the bookshop, Santa Cruz Bookshop. A bookshop, Santa Cruz, uh, 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 an institution of, of uh, Neil Coonerty. No, Kennedy. Did he run for mayor or something in your town? I believe it, it was his son who did, and I, or for a council seat. And I think he won, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. That's awesome. Yeah, I like that. We're we're huge bookstore fans, and I think the bookstores are hugely important. The we sell our books from small beer wherever we can. You know, chain bookstores say we want to order a couple of hundred copies of your book. We're not going to say no because we know people who live. You know, in the middle of nowhere where the nearest bookstore is a chain bookstore, I'd rather they were reading books than not. You know, the, at least the access to them. I love when libraries buy books because I, I want the books to be out there. But the we don't hear stories from the chains like, hey, we have sold 200 copies of The Mount by Carol Emschweller the way that we hear from Prairie Lights in Iowa City. Or, you know, you pick any of our books, we can probably uh, find a bookstore that there's someone out there who just made this book happen you know which is which is amazing the my brother in glasgow is saying that in scotland is saying that the indie bookstores there they've kind of reached that point where you suddenly notice oh there were you know 25 and now there's three and i am afraid that that is happening here and you know it's that hot water the frog doesn't notice that it's dying it's like please please shop at your indie bookstore and you know pay smart people in your town to sell books because in five years time if you don't do it now they won't be there and you will miss it one thing that that really interests me about um this collection is the uh the inclusion of non-fiction gavin you ha have a, a lovely essay to our favorite drink scotch could you talk about the decision to include nonfiction in this book? I, I, Kelly, let, let, let's hear from Kelly Link. Nonfiction in Rose, Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet. I'm going to get that right pretty soon. Uh, when, we, when we started putting together a zine, um, we wanted to include as broad a range of things as possible, and we also wanted to get people to contribute things that they might not normally have, have thought about writing except there was sort of a venue for it. And so we asked people if there were things that they really wanted to write about that weren't necessarily short stories, but might be movies that they loved, things like that. And we also wanted to pull in as large a community of writers as possible, including people who didn't really think of themselves as writers, people like Will Smith. Um, also, you know, writers whose work we really love, like Richard Butner, um, who has a passion for martinis. You know, we thought it'd be great if we could get him to write something about a martini, things like that. Karen, could you tell me a little bit, have, have you written much nonfiction? 
I have not written a lot of nonfiction, um, although a great deal of the fiction that I've written has been carefully researched by books that are, in fact, on the nonfiction shelf in libraries, but I am still not confident enough in their veracity to put my name on it and say that it's all true. I think, um, again, in the same sort of way that we were talking about the tools of realism and the tools of science fiction, that reality for me is just a, a very, very, very tricky thing to get a hold of. So I'm just much more comfortable not pretending that any of it is real, even though in my heart I think much of it is. Uh, Karen, you have a movie based on the Jane Austen book club coming out soon. H have you seen the movie? I have seen the movie. Uh, I, I saw an early cut of it where everything was done, I think, except for some of the music and apparently some of the actor's hair needed to be touched up in ways that, as a non-professional, I could not see the problem, but was apparently glaring if you knew what you were doing. Well, tell us, what did you think? Do you think that your readers will be pleased? I do think my readers will be pleased. I do feel, um, I, I think it's a smart movie. I think that uh, the woman who wrote the screenplay also directed it. I, also, I always think that's a, a good idea, that a single kind of vision shepherds the, the movie forward. I think the cast is fantastic, but I, I do feel that the movie belongs to the screenwriter and, and not to me. Uh, it's not, I, I feel, pretty detached from the the process and the product although I, I'm ple I think people will like the movie uh, I always find it really interesting to, to think about the difference of an experience between reading and seeing a movie because reading is so uh, involves such a creative act on the part of the reader I wonder if you if all of you would care to comment on, on the kind of the creative act that takes place when somebody sits down in front of a story and, and reads. Uh, Kelly Link, tell us what you think. Um, specifically about uh, about writing, writing a story, it's, it's a hard thing to think about. When I think about writing a story, you know, it's I, I make all the decisions, I can do pretty much anything that I want to do. When I sit down to read a story again, I don't, I don't think about the author that much. You know, I'm, I'm pretty conscious that I'm, I'm the only person involved with the thing that I'm reading, unless, it, unless it's a story or a novel that's not working very well, and then I begin to be curious about the decisions that the writer has made. But when you, when you watch movie or television, you're aware of the audience, you're aware that, that there are people on screen, that these are real people, and I think that that simplifies the experience in some ways and complicates it in other ways. Um, you know, something that's tremendously pleasurable is, is watching television with a group of friends. So in fact, you are watching, but you're also commenting on it, um, you're discussing it afterwards, um, and you very rarely have that kind of conversation about books um, in the same way, like outside a book group or outside something like Harry Potter, where such a large group of people have, have read something. Karen, your book directly addresses this issue, so you're at the top of the list to talk about it. I think one of the, um, one of the things that persuaded me that I could be a writer um, back in the days when I wasn't and when there was actually very little evidence to suggest that I could be was the way that I read. I felt that I was um, 
that I was really a great reader. And, and by that, I don't mean, you know, astonishingly perceptive or even um, that I read enormous amounts, although I did, but that I really had an ability to fall completely into a book. And, you know, I, I know so many of us remember, at least as children, that moment when your mother calls you for dinner and you honestly don't remember who you are. You're surprised to to be back in your body because you've been so thoroughly transported. And I sort of imagined that writing was just the flip side of that, that, that when I read, somebody else put some words, you know, some code words, some keywords on a page, and that I made up a story based on those words in some way, and that this would simply be the, you know, the, the reverse of that, that I would think of the words, and, or that I would think of the story and distill it into the words. And it has certainly been um, incontrovertibly proven to me that the words that I put on the page and that the story somebody reads from those words are often um, surprising to both people in that transaction. I just talked to Alan Chu's a couple weeks ago, and he likened it to different people reading a, a musical, different interpretations of a musical score, that a composer could set down notes on a page and two completely different people could come up and you could have the Jean-Michel Jarre version of a song or you could have the Jane Sibbery version of a song and they would not even be remotely almost even recognizable as the same thing, yet they'd be based on those same words. Gavin, tell us what you think. Wow, yeah. The, I think I came up with, I was talking to someone who used the phrase narrative dream, that it's the, the narrative dream that takes over you in any of these situations. The one thing, I, I guess I understand why TV and movies are so popular, because you can sit down it's, it's an entertainment form that you can come in, come out of, and you can sit down with your friends or your partner, your whatever. You can disappear into it without doing a lot of work, but it's a social thing. Or it can, even if no one's spoken for the last couple of hours, the maximum thing you might have done is pass the popcorn. It's still a social thing as compared to people reading books, because even if you're reading books, it's unlikely that you will be reading at the same speed or having the same experience. Um, I was just reading John Kessel's novel Corrupting Dr. Nice, which was a ton of fun, a screwball comedy. And then Jonathan Lethem's quote on the back of it was something like, if there were, if there were date books the way there are date movies, this would be a date book. And I thought that was you know, really funny. Um, no, not true, but a really nice idea that we could uh, share books the same way. Gavin, you and Kelly have been publishing Lady Churchill's robot wristlet, <laughs> as the new issue is called, for a number of years. And I'd like you both to, to talk about the, the changes in publishing, printing technology, and just the, the, the torment that going from Word to Quark to InDesign, that all that kind of stuff is, must have caused you. Kelly, tell us a little, what was your part in this? Uh, my, my part is very small. Gavin actually does most of the, the laying out the magazine. He's been the one who's sort of moved us from, from one, um, one form of, of, of publishing software to the next. Um, the one thing that, that we talk about doing that we may do in the future is to, to take submissions electronically. 
and that will be a, a pretty big shift. Um, at that point, it will be a, pretty much a paperless transaction until we begin to put out the put out the magazine. But we know uh, presses like One Story and a poetry magazine, Jubilat, that are doing that, and it's it's a nice. Uh, nice to think that you could do all of this and so little paper gets used up. Um, the biggest change in the last couple of years is that the postal rates just went up, which is going to affect a lot of magazines and not for the better. The postal rates are amazing. The, I didn't follow what was happening. I signed a petition, you know, said, please don't do what you're going to do. It seems that some large corporation wrote this and the U.S. Postal, post office went for it. It means that when you try and mail a book abroad, it's basically $10. There's no, there's no C rate anymore. There doesn't seem to be. So the, people sort of notice this, but other literary magazines, for, for instance, they're noticing it now because their fall issues should be mailed. They're going, but wait, we have you know, 200 overseas subscribers and that used to cost us you know, $1,000. Now it costs us $2,000. Ah, where, do we, where does that extra $1,000 come from? We don't have 200 overseas subscribers, but it is going to be yet another, you know, small hit. I guess, you know, changing the changing technologies, I'm not looking forward to the taking online submissions. I know Strange Horizons and other magazines do it very well. I just fear that we will get even more submissions, and I don't read particularly fast, so... It, it just hurts. <laughs> it's Saturday night, and I think, oh, what should I do? I should probably read the submission pile. Um. It has become a lot easier to find artists that we want to work with, though. In the last two, three years, um, I think most artists have, have finally put up web pages, and so people like this this guy, we could, we could see what they'd done. Um, they contacted us. Um, that's how we've found the last couple of covers for um, for the books that we publish with Small Beer as well, and that's a huge advantage. Well, Karen, I, I can see that the technological revolution has helped you to the point where you're able to <laughs> sit in a cafe and write on a, an absolutely tiny Sony Vio computer. I, I'm wondering, do you feel any trepidation at having you know, so much work on, on what seems to me, as an ex-systems administrator, to be... I didn't hear the last part. Uh, as an ex-systems administrator, I used to be the guy, when somebody's computer broke, they would come and say, it's all your fault, fix it immediately, and I can't do any work until, it's, until you have fixed it. So t do you feel any fear to put your stuff on a computer? Interestingly... Um the last time Kelly and Gavin and I got together for an extended period of time, we were on a retreat in uh, Arizona. And I was there to make a big push on the novel that I had been working on and was long overdue and turning in. And so we had set aside this period of time, a t 10 days or so, to just focus, focus, focus. And... Um, and I got, uh, took me sort of a couple of days to kind of let go and get into a rhythm. And I felt that I had one really productive day and then my computer crashed. So, yes, this is certainly something I think about. But it's also, in, in this case, a very happy story because we were, uh, it was late at night. Um, for some reason, I felt it did need to be fixed instantly. And 
uh, Gavin drove me out to the edge of town where there was just, was it just a good guys that we were at? It was some, Circuit City, maybe? yeah. And you know, there was just a man behind the desk who I handed my computer to and he took about 20 minutes and didn't, was not able to fix it, but was able to jerry-rig something so that I could continue to use it. It was, yeah, you know, the, often when you take your computer to somebody looking for help, they, in fact, although they have a salary and a position, don't really seem to know any more about it than you do. And then every once in a while, you just find somebody who does some sort of magic and, you know, opens programs up that you don't even know exist and says, you know, well, if you hold down the shift key while you tap this seven times and twirl twice around, you will see that everything is solved. And sure enough, it is. You weren't supposed to tell, give that seven key twirl around combination out. <laughs> the systems administrators of the world are going to be very upset with me. I may have to edit this portion of the conversation, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> I, I wonder if we, if you could talk about this process of finding the new writers that 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 you get, I, I take your your you have a fairly uh, high rate of submission to to your magazine now. And how did it get that way? Not sure because whenever um, market listings contact us and say, "Can we list LCRW as a market?" I generally say no, figuring if you want to send stories to the magazine, you'll. A friend will pass it to you, you'll find it in a zine store, you'll come across it online, something like that. But um, our submissions have certainly gone up. And the, the fun thing about reading submissions is reading them as blind as possible, trying not to read the name on the envelope, trying not, which isn't hard actually when you have a box of you know 200 manuscripts in front of you. The last thing you're caring about is who this came from or what exactly you know their tutor told them once in about how good a writer they are or where they've been published. I generally uh, put that page to the back and just start reading. Um, the weird thing about editing any magazine, uh, which we discovered very quickly, is that you can only publish what you get. Um, you know, we can't, we can say this is going to be uh, a slap upside the face of not just science fiction, but also butter making. Just this is it, this is, the new, this is the new synthesis of everything in the universe. And then someone sent you a story about drunken fairies in New York. And it's like, fairies of any sort you like. And, you know, oh, okay, well, I guess we're not quite as, you know, nuevo moda as we hope to be, but maybe next time. So I, I but I, I think somehow the zine has been passed from hand to hand a bit, you know, and we will, we go to this associated writing programs convention where it's a lot of people in writing programs um, and some of them have heard of it which is you know which is great so they're and they're sending in stories just I have no idea people people send us weird uh, short stories and it's great could you talk Kelly about some of the most unusual submissions you've received in I mean written on the back of sent or written on you know, we, we don't get anything that compares to the the submissions I used to read for um, Ellen Datlow for Sci-Fi Online. The, the the like you know we she got around 300 submissions a month, and there were some really crazy stories. And I think because we're so small, 
most of the people sending stuff to us have to be pretty keyed in, clued in to, to know that we exist. Um, we did get a submission from a, a guy who lives um, about 40 minutes away from us, which included these amazing illustrations, and the story was hand-printed. The story itself did not make a lot of sense, but the way that it had been arranged around his art, and the art itself was really gorgeous in a sort of outsider art tradition, and we are still thinking about this this piece. You know, it's, it's something that we actually think people would really enjoy reading and looking at, even if it doesn't really fit into the things that we normally publish. And this is one of the odd things about fiction is that there's not really a category for some of the very oddest kinds of, of, of slash or submission that you see, stuff which is, you know, it's the really, really bad stuff from, from, from the magazine that, that um, sticks in your head for a very long time. And the way that a lot of the competent stuff does not, there was a submission to um, sci-fi that, that was, um, the guy had punctuated all the sentences with the word bang, exclamation point, sort of randomly throughout the paragraph, which was such an effective stylistic technique that, you know, for, for a couple of weeks we went around sort of talking and saying bang in the middle of whatever we were saying, which sort of punctuates it in this very exciting way. And this would be probably why uh, Gavin left all the punctuation out of one of the subversions of this uh, particular manuscript for Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet. I sent it right that time, didn't I? Um, Richard Butner is not a man uh, who holds a grudge, which I'm very, very uh, glad for. He's one of the most gracious, kind, polite. Are you listening, Richard? Uh, okay, he's gone away now. Um, yeah, I, I have no idea. You know, these things happen. And I would put that down to dealing with AppleWorks software at the time. Um, AppleWorks, Word, and maybe moving between PageMaker and Quark, something like that. And some of these editions of software were obviously trial versions of software. Uh, there weren't particularly software things that um, would be the most official software uh, copies at the time. Um, these things happen. We we don't we we discovered very early on when we started the press. You know, we we received all this advice. We just we just asked people until their spouses walked out of restaurants. We asked people questions about absolutely everything, and one of the things they said was, "Don't skimp on proofreaders and copy editors," which is something we have ignored whenever it comes to Lady Churchill's ever since. To um, um, you know, to our public embarrassment. But with the books, we, you know, we very happily, it's like the happiest check I write. You know, I, I write all the checks, so, and I don't want to because I would like to, I would like to pay the writers. I don't really care about paying the printers and stuff like that. I have to. But then when it comes time to paying the proofreaders, it's like, yes, yes, look, this, this will, this, this, you know, $500 will make this book uh, a really good book instead of, you know, oh God, can't even spell paint. Ooh. Uh, yeah, proofreading is not my strong suit, and if you look at my website, much to my constant embarrassment, you will find many examples of my inability to, or my ability to look at something about a hundred times and never realize just how completely inane the mistake I have made is. Uh, Karen, could you tell us a little bit about your experience on the other side with the the New York world and how you have to deal with 
the official process that you generate a beautiful work of art on your computer, it's complete, it's perfect in every way, shape, or form, and then you hand it up to somebody who has, who takes a butcher knife to it and does horrible things? I hear many, many, many writers tell that story, but that's honestly not been my experience. I create what appears to me to be a finished piece of work. I send it in to my editor. I learn that it is not a finished piece of work, that many things need to be done to it. Um, I never agree with everything she says, but I always agree with lots of what she says. I think my books are much, much better after they've been edited than before. I usually, um, you know, I, I have two or three, at least two or three people, if not 20 or 30 people reading my drafts. So uh, I get a lot of help at various points. And then I have the most fabulous copy editor. I just, I never wish to do a book without this woman again. Oh, the, uh, she, um, you know, she's incredibly meticulous. Uh, I appear to use commas in just a sort of exuberant and joyful way that makes very little sense when you actually look at the page and the way I've strewn them about. But um, also, the level of fact-checking that she does is just... In the Jane Austen Book Club, I had a character um, who is watching, uh, watching uh, the World Cup soccer and she went and checked the dates of when the games would have been and what time of night it would have been and what time of year it would have been. And I have a scene that takes place at this tiny little county fair in Dixon. And she you know, did some web research and told me that the Scottish games would not have been on Thursday as I had them, but would instead have been on Tuesday. And only, only place she let me down is apparently I put in five words in an entire book about Jane Austen. I put in five words about Patrick O'Brien and, and made a mistake. So the sort of first response to the book I got was I rate emails from Patrick O'Brien fans. We've been speaking with Gavin Grant, Kelly Link, and Karen Joy Fowler. Thank you for joining me, Gavin. Thank you. Karen? Great pleasure. Kelly? Thanks very much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thank you.